Good morning. If someone asks you, why do we celebrate Christmas? And what is its significance to us as Christians? You could tell him. If someone asks you, why do we celebrate Easter? And what is its significance to us as Christians? You could tell her. But has anyone ever asked you, why do we Christians observe Palm Sunday? Have you ever wondered about that yourself? As I grew up, Palm Sunday never meant very much to me. I came to know the story through Sunday school and church, but I never really knew the significance of it. And this morning, we want to consider two questions. First of all, what was Jesus accomplishing on that first Palm Sunday? And secondly, what is the significance of the Palm Sunday events for us these hundreds of years later? The events of that day can be summarized in two words. The words triumph and tragedy. Please turn in your Bibles to Luke chapter 19. I'm going to read verses 28 through 44. If you're using the, the church Bible, it is on, in the book rack in front of you. And uh, the text is on page 1018 of the church Bible. I'm going to be reading from the New American Standard Version. I realize that uh, some of you may be reading from the New International or the King James or uh, the New Living or... One of the others, but I don't think the, uh, the differences are going to be too great. But I will be reading from the New American Standard. Beginning in verse 28, Luke 19. After he had said these things, he was going on ahead, going up to Jerusalem. And when he approached Bethphage and Bethany, near the mount that is called Olivet, he sent two of the disciples, saying, Go into the village ahead of you. There, as you enter, you will find a colt tied on which no one yet has ever sat. Untie it and bring it here. If anyone asks you, why are you untying it? You shall say, the Lord has need of it. So those who were sent went away and found it just as he had told them. And as they were untying the colt, its owner said to them, why are you untying the colt? And they said, the Lord has need of it. They brought it to Jesus, and they threw their coats on the colt and put Jesus on it. And as he was going, they were spreading their coats on the road. As soon as he was approaching near the descent of the Mount of Olives, the whole crowd of the disciples began to praise God joyfully with a loud voice for all the miracles which they had seen, shouting, Blessed is the King who comes in the name of the Lord. Peace in heaven and glory in the highest. Some of the Pharisees in the crowd said to him, Teacher, rebuke your disciples. But Jesus answered and said, I tell you, if these become silent, the stones will cry out. When he approached Jerusalem, he saw the city and he wept over it, saying, If you had known in this day, even you, the things which make for peace, but now they've been hidden from your eyes. The days will come upon you when your enemies will throw up a barricade against you. 
and surround you and hem you in on every side. And they will level you to the ground and your children within you. And they will not leave in you one stone upon another because you did not recognize the time of your visitation. Let's pray together. Father, enable us now, I pray, to understand your word. The scripture says that on the day of the resurrection, as Jesus spoke with those two disciples on the road to Emmaus, the scripture says he opened their minds to understand the scriptures. And we would ask this morning, our father, that you would open our minds to understand the scriptures to see you, to hear you, to see your truth and how you want it applied in our lives. We are incapable of ourselves. Please help us to understand. In Jesus' name, amen. On that first Palm Sunday, Jesus declared boldly, openly, and deliberately that he himself was the promised Messiah of the Old Testament scriptures. If you don't remember anything else from the message this morning in terms of what do the events of Palm Sunday mean, that is the heart and the soul of it. Jesus declared boldly, openly, and deliberately that he was the promised Messiah, the promised King, the promised Savior, of the Old Testament. He was demonstrating that boldly in what he did that day. Now, you may be thinking, but how about the three years before this of his public ministry? Wasn't he saying that he was the Messiah? Wasn't he demonstrating that? And he was. But let me frame it for you this way. In those three prior years, Jesus had tried to keep a low profile. For sure, he confronted the false teaching of the religious leaders. He healed the sick. He cast out demons. He proclaimed that the forgiveness of sins and peace with God was open to all who would repent and believe. But Jesus intentionally avoided any spectacular public demonstration of his kingship. For example, in Mark chapter 1, verse 34, we're told that Jesus cast out many demons, but that he would not allow them to speak because they knew who he was. In verse 37 of that same chapter, Peter and his companions are hunting for Jesus. And when they found him, they tell the Lord, quote, Everyone is looking for you. What was Jesus' response? Let us go somewhere else to the towns nearby in order that I may preach there also. And following the feeding of the 5,000, the crowd decided and they said, this is the prophet who is to come into the world. John chapter 6, verse 14. But scripture records then that when Jesus realized that they were intending to take him by force to make him king, the scripture says, Jesus, quote, 
withdrew to the mountain by himself alone. A short time later, the Harvest Festival, also known as the Feast of Booths, was being celebrated in Jerusalem. And Jesus' brothers urged him to go up to the festival and, quote, show yourself to the world. John 7, chapter, chapter 7, verse 4. What was Jesus' response? My time is not yet at hand, but your time is always opportune. Clearly, Jesus avoided opportunities of public display until it was his time, when his time was at hand. And that first Palm Sunday was the time. That Sunday prior to his crucifixion was his time to openly declare that he was the promised Savior and the promised King and Messiah. Jesus' entry into Jerusalem, riding on that donkey, is the fulfillment of a prophecy that had been made by the Old Testament prophet Zechariah 530 years earlier. The prophecy read, Rejoice greatly, O daughter of Zion! Shout in triumph, O daughter of Jerusalem! Behold, your king is coming to you. He is just and endowed with salvation, humble and mounted on a donkey, even on a colt, the foal of a donkey. Those words had been spoken and written by the prophet Zechariah 530 years before the events of that first Palm Sunday. These words from Zechariah are quoted in Matthew's account of Palm Sunday in Matthew chapter 21. Jesus was making an unmistakable claim. He is saying, I am that promised king. I am the one spoken of by the prophet. Israel, your king is here. His claim was deliberate. It was self-conscious. It was open and it was bold. When we think of that 530 year period until the fulfillment, we may not be impressed. You know why? Because we deal with such huge numbers today. We listen to the news and understand that our country has a $17 trillion national debt. We hear of athletes making 20 or $25 million a year. Just one of those Tomahawk rockets that were used against Syria this past week cost over a million dollars each. So we're immunized to big numbers. They don't impress us. And certainly a number like 550 seems like small potatoes. But I want you to look at that 550-year period this way. I want you to think about a question. Here's the question. What was happening in the United States 530 years ago? That's right. The United States was not in existence 530 years ago. And if we date the settlement of Jamestown in 1607, that is only 410 years. Go back another 120 years, and our nation was inhabited probably by only the Native Americans. And I want you to imagine 
some of the chiefs of these Native American tribes sitting together in council. And one of the chiefs says, I had a dream. And in this dream, I saw a white man named Trump. And he was to be made the chief of all the land in some place called Washington, D.C., wherever that is. We all agree that if that had happened, it would be incredible to be able to predict history with precision is no small thing. But more on that later. On that first Palm Sunday, a precise 530-year-old prophecy was fulfilled in the actions of Jesus Christ. The donkey in ancient Palestine was not the lowly beast we usually conceive. It was a noble beast used by kings. Only in war did kings ride a horse. In peace, they came mounted on a donkey. So Jesus, by this action, arrived as the king, coming in love and peace to his people. He was approaching the city that would soon turn against him. I want you to consider the courage of Jesus. He openly and fearlessly declares himself king right in front of the religious authorities who have put a price on his head. He rode triumphantly into the heart of his enemy's power base. William Barclay paints the picture well for us. He wrote, but he entered in such a way as to focus the whole limelight upon himself and to occupy the center stage. It is a breathtaking thing to think of a man with a price upon his head, an outlaw, deliberately riding into a city in such a way that every eye was fixed upon him. It is impossible to exaggerate the sheer courage of Jesus. Look at verses 38 and or 39 and 40 in our text. So some of the Pharisees in the crowd said to him, teacher, rebuke your disciples. But Jesus answered and said, I tell you, if these become silent, the stones will cry out. Rebuke your disciples, they demanded. Why? Because the people were applying the words of Psalm 118, a messianic psalm to Jesus. The leaders are outraged by his claim to be the Messiah. And they're outraged that these people, the crowd, not just his own 12 disciples, but others who profess to be his disciples and the crowd, they were powerless to stop this outpouring of emotion. Verse 37 says, the whole multitude of the disciples began to praise God joyfully with a loud voice for all the miracles which they had seen. Did Jesus rebuke them? No. He accepted their praise, despite the fact that many of these very same people would be crying, crucify him, crucify him, just five days later. Those are shocking words that Jesus spoke. If these... If these men and women and children, if they become silent, the stones will cry out. What is Jesus saying? Jesus must be praised. 
If these leaders who hate Jesus could have shut down the crowd, then of necessity, even inanimate objects like stones would have to cry out saying, blessed is the king who comes in the name of the Lord. Whether men voluntarily praise Christ or not, he will and he must be praised. That praise will never be absent from the earth. God will not allow that to happen. Those who hate the name of Jesus will try to silence it in schools, in public places, one day throughout the whole earth under the Antichrist. But it will not happen. He must be praised until that day in heaven when, as the book of Revelation says, myriads of myriads and thousands of thousands sing with a loud united voice, worthy is the lamb that was slain to receive power and riches and wisdom and might and honor and glory and blessings. So that first Palm Sunday was all about Jesus, boldly claiming that he was the fulfillment of that centuries-old prophecy. He was the promised king that had come to his people. On that day, Jesus not only fulfilled a prophecy, Jesus gave or made a prophecy. A prophecy that predicted judgment and tragedy. Let me read it. Verse 41 following. When he approached Jerusalem, he saw the city and he wept over it, saying, if you had known in this day, even you, the things which make for peace. But now they've been hidden from your eyes. For the days will come upon you when your enemies will throw up a, ba a barricade against you and surround you and hem you in on every side. And they will level you to the ground and your children within you. And they will not leave in you one stone upon another because you did not recognize the time of your visitation. As this procession of people approaches Jerusalem. The whole city could be seen from the Mount of Olives. The crowds were wildly celebrating. The religious leaders were angry, frustrated, and plotting. In the midst of all this chaos, the Bible says of Jesus, when he approached Jerusalem, he saw the city and wept. Several days earlier, Jesus had stood at the grave of his friend Lazarus, whom he would momentarily raise from the dead. And John eleven thirty five simply states, Jesus wept. The Greek word that is used for wept in today's text is stronger than the word that was used by John in his record of Lazarus. Tears did not simply well up and roll down Jesus' cheeks. In this text, the word here suggests rather the heaving of the chest and the sob and the cry of a soul in agony. I have witnessed crying like that. Deep pain, inconsolable brokenness. What a contrast. The crowd singing and dancing and Jesus all of a sudden weeping violently his chest heaving, him sobbing, 
Why? Because Jesus looked down the future and he saw tragedy. In the midst of celebration, he saw imminent disaster and he wept. He says, for the days shall come upon you. Jesus had fulfilled an ancient prophecy by riding into Jerusalem on that unbroken donkey. Now he speaks a prophecy for telling the tragedy that is going to befall Jerusalem and the people he loved. The city, he says, will be surrounded so no one can escape. And then it will be leveled to the ground. Children, the most tragic victims of war, would be cut down and slaughtered. Not one stone would be left upon another. In one instant, Jesus saw the city laid out before him with all its beautiful buildings and the temple standing out majestically on the temple mount. And in the next moment, he looks down the years of history and he saw tragedy. And seeing it, he wept. Was Jesus correct? This prophecy did not have to wait centuries to be fulfilled like the earlier one from Zechariah. A mere 37 years later, the Roman armies under General Titus destroyed the holy city and slaughtered its people. In A.D. 70, the Romans would come. And after a siege of 143 days, less than five months, they would kill 600,000 Jews take thousands more captive to be used in the gladiatorial games in Rome and then destroy the temple and the city. And Jesus wept. Why did this tragedy come? Because Jesus said, you did not recognize the time of your visitation. He says in verse 44, that's why it's going to happen. You did not recognize the time of your visitation. As I prepared this message, a question troubled me. Doesn't this wild celebration of Jesus, doesn't the quoting of the scripture, Psalm 118, by the people, doesn't the crowd rehearsing all of the miracles that they had seen, as verse 37 says, don't all those things show us that the people did, in fact, recognize the time of their visitation? Jesus, what do you mean? They didn't recognize. I think Warren Wiersbe gets our thinking moving in the right direction when he says, as Jesus looked around, he saw religious activity that accomplished very little. He saw the temple had become a den of thieves, and the religious leaders were out to kill him. The city was filled with pilgrims celebrating a festival, but the hearts of the people were heavy with sin and life's burdens. Earlier in his ministry, Jesus had declared that the people honored him with their lips, but their heart was far from him. Religious ritual and pious sounding words would not do. Even enthusiastic, joyous, loud worship was useless if the heart was not right with God. 
Jesus wanted to see the things, as our text says, the things which make for peace. And what are those things? Repentance, righteous living, simple obedience, kindness toward the neighbor, worship that was based in truth and originated from the heart. In a few short days, the chief priest would proudly declare, we have no king but Caesar. They would sound more like secularist or materialist than God-fearers. Even most of the common folk now celebrating and dancing about and singing and quoting the psalm. Most of those common folk, what they really wanted was bread or healing and most of all, political freedom and liberation from Rome. When they sang Hosanna, save us, they meant save us from Rome, not save us from our sin. Tragic words that Jesus spoke. You did not recognize the time of your visitation. Truth matters. God matters. Peace with God matters. We perhaps have trouble understanding why Jesus got so worked up on that first Palm Sunday. But is that failure to understand because our sense of urgency to be right with God and our sense of the fear of the consequences of unchecked sin in our lives, is it possible that that's been dulled, almost non-existent? Triumph and tragedy. The events of that first Palm Sunday are summarized in those two words. We've read the events. I've spoken of the events for a few minutes. Those events back there in history. But what difference should it make in our lives today? I want to suggest that there are two applications to encourage us. And one to warn us. First of all, we are reminded that God does what he says. And his word will not fail. 530 years prior to the triumphal entry, Zechariah had prophesied that the appointed king, the promised savior, would come to Jerusalem riding on a donkey. More than five centuries had passed until God's word was fulfilled. God spoke and his word was fulfilled. And then on that first Palm Sunday, Jesus foretold that Jerusalem would be destroyed. Its temple burned to the ground and its people ravaged. Thirty-seven years later, the Roman legion under General Titus did exactly, exactly as Jesus had predicted. The prophet Isaiah, over 700 years earlier, had declared, Remember the former things, long past, for I am God and there is no other. I am God and there is none like me, declaring the end from the beginning and from ancient times things which have not been done, saying, My purpose will be established and I will accomplish all my good pleasure. Powerful words 
What was Isaiah the prophet saying 700 years before the time of Christ? He was saying that God foretells the future from ancient times. He foretells what will take place, and it happens. And Isaiah says that that proves that the God of the Bible is the one true God. He says, because God does say from ancient times what will happen, and then it happens. That proves that he is God. And as the scripture says, there is none other. Isaiah says, furthermore, that God's good pleasure will be accomplished. God is, God is in absolute and final control of history. The words of Kent Hughes are appropriate. He says, we must keep ever before us that on the day that Christ rode humbly into Jerusalem, the Jerusalem then dominated by Roman pomp and splendor, he was absolutely in control. He was in control of the entire length of the Passion Week. The wheel of history did not crush him as Albert Schweitzer argued in the quest for the historical Jesus. Jesus was turning the wheel. It is wise for us today to study our Bibles, to see what God has said about the end of this world and what lies beyond the grave, because he declares the end from the beginning and from ancient times, things that have not yet been done. He has spoken through his prophets and his purpose will be established and his good pleasure will be accomplished. Our world, our world is increasingly out of control. Violence is growing in our communities as well as globally. Every week. Sometimes it seems multiple times a week we turn on the news and hear of another terrorist attack in this part of the world or that part of the world or in the United States. Jesus himself prophesied in Matthew 24 that before his return, he says that the world will be just like the days of Noah. If you go back to Genesis chapter 6, and read what the Bible says about the days of Noah. The one trait or characteristic of those days that is emphasized is this. And the earth was filled with violence. Jesus says that among other things, when I come back, the earth will be filled with violence. We are living in a world increasingly out of control. But God does not intend that the hearts of his people be troubled and racked with fear. And why not? Because he is the one in control. He has spoken about the end of this world. He has spoken about the new heavens and the new earth that he's preparing for his people. And he is the one who from ancient times, speaks of what has not yet been done. But when God speaks, his word will not fail.
If you want to begin a study of Bible prophecy, a reader-friendly book to help you launch into that study of the scriptures might be this one, a book entitled The Amazing Claims of Bible Prophecy by Mark Hitchcock, subtitled What You Need to Know in These Uncertain Times. And in there, Hitchcock talks about 10 Bible prophecies from the past that have been fulfilled. And he talks about 10 that have not yet been fulfilled. The significance of that first Palm Sunday begins with this. God's word will be fulfilled. Secondly, there's a second application meant to encourage us. We have seen that Jesus Christ must be praised and worshipped. It is not only appropriate, it is inevitable. The Bible tells us in Philippians 2, 9 through 11, God highly exalted him, Jesus, and bestowed on him the name which is above every name, so that the name of Jesus every knee will bow of those who are in heaven and on earth and under the earth, and every tongue will confess that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father. That day is coming. You recall Jesus' words in verse 40? It says, I tell you, if these become silent, the stones will cry out. If we refuse, then God will cause stones to speak his glory and to give to Jesus the praise he deserves. There are powerful forces in our increasingly secular nation that want to silence all public, public reference to the name of Jesus. Forces that want to silence the voices and the consciences of humble men and women, bakers, t-shirt manufacturers, florists, and photographers who politely refuse to use their talents to promote a homosexual agenda that they personally believe is wrong. These forces want to silence them and their references to Jesus. And these same forces have no objection to people promoting their vague spirituality in, in the public square. But it may prove costly to identify clearly with Jesus Christ. Not just spirituality, but Jesus. Christian, let us pray that God would grant us the courage that matches the courage of our Lord as he marched into the teeth of the opposition's power base. That we would never be ashamed to show whose we are and whom we serve. Pray for that courage. I remember growing up, and as a teenager, I was very much impressed by a story I heard, an illustration I heard, of a 12-year-old girl in North Korea. Shortly after the communists took over North Korea, campaign began against the churches. And in this particular church, on this particular day of worship, as they worshiped, soldiers burst through the door. They told all the people to line up in single file outside the church. And then... They went, and on the ground, they painted a cross. And they said, every one of you 
If you will walk up to that cross and spit on it or step on it, you will go free. If you walk across or around it, you will be killed. The first man in line walked up to that cross. He spit on it and he stamped on it and he went away a free man. The next person in line was a 12-year-old girl. And she walked up to the cross and she kneeled down and kissed it. Instantly, she was shot. And every other person in that church walked up to that cross, knelt down and kissed it, and was killed. May God give us the courage, no matter what happens in an increasingly secularized world, never to be ashamed to say, I believe in Jesus. I belong to Jesus. I want to serve Jesus. We're compelled, finally, to recognize one final lesson. And it is a warning. And the warning is this. Ignoring God's visitation is costly. The words of Christ on that first Palm Sunday declared an imminent tragedy. An opportunity had been lost. An inheritance of God's blessing and peace was squandered. Jesus says, if you had known in this day the things which make for peace, but now they've been hidden, for the days will come and they will level you to the ground because you did not recognize the time of your visitation. The one who was in control sobbed on that day. His heart was broken. How God loves fallen mankind like us. How he grieves for what could have been but never will be. Jesus is the sovereign Lord of history and human destiny. He will judge sin. And he takes no pleasure in the death of the sinner or in the misery of the self-inflicted wounds of his own stubborn children. Question. Has God visited you? Has he visited you today, even as you've listened to this message? Have you heard the voice of God in your conscience and in your heart and in your soul calling you to repentance? Perhaps you have never found peace with God. Perhaps you, you know that if you died tonight, you do not go into an eternity knowing that you will see Christ as your Savior. And perhaps he is even reaching out to you today and you are hearing him speak. He is visiting you right now and calling you to believe, to embrace Christ, to put your hope completely in what he has done for you on that cross and his resurrection. He has paid the price for your sin. Has he visited you? Or Christian, those who are followers of Christ, has he visited you today or in past weeks or in past months, calling you to repentance as a Christian, calling you to godly living in some area of your life, warning you of that dangerous course that you are flirting with? 
as was true of the crowds on that day. It doesn't matter that we can quote scripture. It doesn't matter that we can sing praise songs. Those things don't matter if, in fact, our hearts are not right with God. Jesus wept because the people had missed the hour of their visitation. Yes, they were dancing. They were singing. They were quoting the scripture. But he wept because their hearts did not belong to him. I urge you, recognize the time of your visitation. Respond promptly to Christ. Because to ignore his visitation will be costly. It will mean loss, just as it did for the Jews on that day. Isaiah exhorts us, seek the Lord while he may be found. Call upon him while he is near. And then this wonderful promise. God says, I dwell on a high and a holy place. And also with the contrite and the lowly of spirit. In order to revive the spirit of the lowly. And to revive the heart of the contrite. Is that what you want? Let's pray.